Hey, hey y'all. Uh, today we're going to get into Seduction. So this came out in 79, uh, I believe, and this is really, <clears throat> excuse me, this is what some people label as a turning point in Baudrillard's thinking, moreover in his, um, in his style, his methodology, where some people suggest that it's in this text or it's after this text that Baudrillard really gets away from like the academic models of, you know, performing uh, academia, or the form that ideas should take in order to be, you know, readily accepted by the uh, general academic community. But this, I, for my own part, I find this hardly to belong to such a camp. So it's difficult to really suggest that there was such a clear shift at this point. And moreover, I generally resist the notion that there are like two Baudrillards, which is an idea that certainly floats around. There's the, you know, more academically rigor Baudrillard, and then the more aphoristic, more deterritorialized Baudrillard, which to some extent I agree with. The ideas don't change all that much, though. And there is a fundamental consistency between his arguments from... Even if you look at his first book, The System of Objects, and his uh, last one, or some of his last ones, like The Intelligence of Evil, there are, there are striking similarities, and there really is a progression in his thought. But, anyways, to get into seduction, I want to take a moment to read a couple of things out of two other books first. The reason I want to do this is because, and this is just me watching other videos and other, other kinds of explanations of this text, uh, just to see what people are saying about it. And what I want to try and combat is the idea that Baudrillard sees a fundamental connection between the masculine and the feminine with men and women, where these two things do not go hand in hand. There is not an easy transposition between the masculine and real men and women and uh, the feminine. That's an idea that people often have bastardized and I think it happens because it makes things simple in a way and it gives a face to these kind of broad metaphorical categories i.e. men and uh, the masculine and the feminine. So the first passage I'd like to read that really disturbs that uh, easy transposition between the two is actually from the Consumer Society, so Baudrillard's second book where he says that the relation of the masculine and the feminine to real men and women is relatively arbitrary. Pretty simple to digest that, I guess. It's a pretty self-explanatory. And then the second is actually in Radical Alterity, which is, a, for the most part, a book-length interview with uh, Marc Guillaume, where Marc Guillaume is trying to unravel the idea of seduction, which I'll explain in more detail, or at least I'll provide some kind of um, an explanation here, but what Marc Guillaume says is that you decide that a woman is your destiny and you take on that destiny in total indifference to her physical or psychological being. Pure seduction means saying 
You will be her, and I will follow you. Men have access to this experience, but not women. To which Baudrillard replies, I don't know. You are bringing in sexual difference, which I had not put in play. So the reason I'm doing this is because it would be too limiting, in a sense. It would really place boundaries around the discussion of seduction that I'll undertake here if we simply locate either the masculine or the feminine within male or, or female uh, traits, or as being there's some being some kind of correlative between the two, whereas that is not at all what is going on here, in my mind. So he begins his book by saying that nothing is less certain today than sex. Behind the liberation of its discourse, behind the liberation of its discourse, and nothing today is less certain than desire. Behind the proliferation of its images. So this lays the foundation for what Baudrillard is going to is, wants to do here, and he does that primarily by making, or he does whatever that is, by making uh, a clear split, or illustrating there to be a split between seduction and desire, or to put it in other terms, sex and seduction, if you will, where these two things do not go hand in hand. Baudrillard. What, he, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to resist the idea that the emancipation of sex, or the emancipation of sexuality, is in itself some kind of move towards a liberatory type discourse, or a liberatory type um, societal configuration. So sexuality then corresponds to, for Baudrillard, in, um, I guess, in taking from Freud, sexuality belongs to a masculine principle where, he says, paraphrasing quote, uh, Freud, there is one sexuality, one libido, and it is masculine. Sexuality has a strong discriminative structure centered on the phallus, castration, the name of the father, and repression. So a good, an, a good supplement to this book, in a sense, is uh, Anti-Oedipus, that takes on the Oedipal dimension much more uh, rigorously, but here, Baudrillard wants to think about sexuality, or sex as it, it takes the physical form, as being indicative of the masculine. So again, I want to reiterate that this is he uses the masculine as a metaphor. The feminine, on the other hand, plays with the role of images. How sex, sex and sexuality are taken up to the image power, where they are, in a sense made to, they're placed on a terrain, or placed on a plateau, in which they are allowed to change, adapt, and, and flow, if you will. Whereas in the masculine, there's always some kind of reduction to a universal, homogenous biological function, which limits, which, do, which sets boundaries on the possibility of sexuality, the forms it can take, what it can mean, and then, you know, of course, we inevitably end up into this in this uh, domain of a certain kind of repression, hence the use of Freud here. But very much following Foucault, or not so much following, but in the first volume of The History of Sexuality, Foucault says that in challenging the repressive hypothesis, it's not so much that there was this kind of all-prevailing discourse 
or counter discourse to sexuality that hope to see it become obfuscated, kind of sequestered under, you know, a puritanical religious principle. But instead, we actually saw this kind of explosion of sexuality or discourse surrounding sexuality, which Foucault wanted to interrogate and, and ask, okay, to what extent does this explosion of sexuality not necessarily mark um, an emancipation, but actually open the door for different um, different centers of power, you know, the way they take the form of the psychiatry of you know, the clinic or whatever, that open up new forms of control over these uh, new discourses around sexuality. Baudrillard is doing very much the same thing here. So he says, this is very much what is happening today. Erotic polyvalence, the infinite potentiality of desire, different connections, diffractions, libidinal intensities, all multiple variants of a liberatory alternative coming from the frontiers of a psycho psychoanalysis free of Freud or from the frontiers of desire free of psychoanalysis now, all of these elements, desire, the, um, the libido, diffractions, libidinal intensities, these all correspond to the domain of the masculine in that they presuppose there to be, first of all, uh, a certain subject position that, that is able to potentiate, that is able to detect and then mobilize a sort of sexual energy that will you know, lead to whatever, whether it be instant gratification, some kind of utopic societal setup a la Marcuse or anything like that. For Baudrillard, that is not quite the case. And as I, as I stated, in very much the same way as in the same vein as uh, Foucault, Baudrillard's weary about this uh, liberatory discourse or this notion of liberation coming out of sexualities and emancipation. So in this way, Baudrillard, you know, rather problematically, or quite problematically, at least in the discussions I've had with some uh, feminist scholars, he states that the women's liberation in like the 60s, precisely because it, in very much in relation to Irigaray's thought, sort of opened up the domain for a... Um, an essentialism around women to be uh, brought into fruition. Now what he says is that the danger of the sexual revolution for the female is that she will be enclosed within a structure that condemns her to either discrimination when the structure is strong or a der derisory triumph within a weakened structure. So all that this would allow, um, opening up the discourse around sexuality for, for women, would actually be in the indoctrination into an oppressive system. Now, is it Baudrillard's place to say what women should or should not want? I don't know. But his, uh, his suggestion here is valid to an extent. And I think it shares some affinities with you know, certain discourses around uh, neo neoliberal type feminist movements that you know, suggest quite simply that if we add women and stir to various you know, CEO type positions, then... Um, sexism will disappear or other forms of oppression will disappear which surely is not the case where those those zones of power actually are indicative of the issue and adding more people to it does not actually help that issue so very much the same argument is being leveled here except n not administrative type positions but sexuality in itself 
The masculine corresponds to the very split between men and women. The masculine corresponds to the there being a reality principle, to a pleasure principle, to a biological certainty, to a libido, to psychoanalysis, to the psyche. All of these correspond to a masculine principle that is part of a cultural logic of dissecting, of excavating, of performing, I guess, historical analyses that see at the very root of things an origin, that see a history, that see a fundamental truth. Whereas the feminine, rather, corresponds to the destructuration, destructuration, the deconstruction, if I use that term rather loosely, of the binaries established by the masculine principle. So the deconstruction of and again, I, I'm using that term really loosely, so please forgive me, of the masculine and the feminine, of the truth and, you know, falsity, anything of that sort. So the feminine for Baudrillard, then, he states, is belongs to the realm of seduction, where seduction is what destabilizes any given system in favor of something else. So up until this point, up until Seduction, the book, the term Baudrillard would use was reversibility. Now, there, this, this is an important detail because reading his earlier stuff, there, there are components of a seductive principle, but he doesn't really use the term. It comes up here and there, but he, the term he uses is uh, reversibility. So what it implies is that no given structure is and of itself a perfect, never-ending structure. It has embedded within it the very possibility of its undoing, i.e. in the form of reversibility. So in order to resist anything, and this is the gripe, one of the gripes that Baudrillard leveled against Marx, was that Marx didn't recognize the extent to which any given system can and will anticipate its uh, antithesis by subsuming the very logic of that antithesis with, into its own ethos, if you will. So there isn't that necessarily that uh, possibility of synthesis, but rather the maintenance of two very opposing ideas that actually perform to keep one another afloat, however difficult that might be to, to grasp. Where Baudrillard is wants to almost see things crumble by their own force precisely because they rely on a sort of on a form of power so again and if i reiterate one of his theses in forget foucault is that there was once a time when you know kings or tyrants would crumble precisely because they claimed to house a certain power but now in the you know the almost equal proliferation of discourse and counter-discourses, we see the maintenance of these forms of power almost in the oppressive democratization of opinion, which is a, a difficult, I you know, it's an idea I struggle with, but I think it's what he's getting at here. So, sort of a digression, but that was the law, that was the order in which, or that was the, I guess, the lexicon he was working with, kind of reversibility, destructuration, anything of that sort, that all gives way to seduction. And reversibility does come back in some in some capacity in his later work, 
And it's uh, these two terms are two terms that he uses interchangeably at some points. Seduction's correspondence to the play of images, the play of signification, then places it in a certain realm. And by extension, the masculine or power corresponds to another realm. So what Baudrillard says is that seduction represents mastery over the symbolic universe, while power represents only mastery of the real universe. So in a sense, seduction then corresponds to signification, which I'll use, I will, implies a correlative to the symbolic rather reluctantly, but I, I will do it anyways. And then power, or the masculine, corresponds to a certain mastery of the real universe. So real universe, you know, implying there to be uh, very universal con uh, material conditions to existence that kind of the early Marxist humanism type stuff, like the, there's a world out there and it, it has these certain principles and we can take from it what we will and that's it and, and that's all. Whereas Baudrillard, thinking back to symbolic exchange and death, wants to think about, in that case, exchange as not necessarily corresponding to some kind of economic principle, but how exchange can take on, using a rather broad term, a symbolic principle, where there doesn't seem to be some kind of law of equivalences or a certain logic to it, but how things can be exchanged without there being some kind of you know, fundamental reason behind it, or one reason kind of um, indicative of post-modernity type type thinking or contemporary thinking about what should constitute proper exchange equivalence anything of that sort so the role of seduction then for Baudrillard is to um, the, he states the capacity imminent to seduction to deny things their truth and to turn it into a game the pure play of appearances and thereby foil all systems of power and meaning with a mere turn of the hand so this lays lays the groundwork for one of his central theses and one of the most important ideas that he, he levels in, uh, oh, it's eluding me, I want to say it's in Fatal Strategies, where he has some kind of derivative of this idea, but what he states is that if the world truly is enigmatic, if the world is truly is, if the world truly is obscure, then our project, our project of theory should not be to try and make the world more uh, more truthful, to try to under, better understand the world, to give it more meaning, but to actually make it more, more enigmatic, to try and make the world more obscure. That is what seduction does. It wrests things away from their truth principle and turns it into a game. The game, and this is an idea he takes up at the end of this book, which I'll expound on more then. Uh, but he opposes the rule, indicative of games, or rules and games, and the law, indicative of society or of the realm of truth. And I really, I apologize for using these terms so broadly, but it's kind of like it's kind of what we have here. Femininity or the feminines relationship to, to simulation then is a very ambiguous one because simulation is that system that corresponds to the you know endless proliferation of signs where signs don't have any connection to a real referent 
but is not necessarily an oppressive phenomenon, but is something that actually has a history, which is what I presented in Symbolic Exchange and Death, where Baudrillard lays out the, the his, kind of the history of simulation coming from the Renaissance to up to today. Um, and in what way then, or what kind of relationship, if we can postulate that characteristic of simulation, what relationship does it have to the feminine? For Baudrillard, there, there is a mutual understanding between the two, and they work together in some sense. But there's a, there's a very odd moment when he says that the strange coincidence points to the ambigu ambiguity of the feminine. It simultaneously provides radical evidence of simulation, and the only possibility of its overcoming. In seduction, precisely. So this is probably the most, in my mind, the most complicated idea that unravel in Baudrillard. And it goes as follows, or question. Is simulation an oppressive force? Is simulation something to be overcome? To which he never provides a, a real answer. And this is something that comes up again in The Perfect Crime, where he says quite simply that simulation and reality are not opposites. Where simulation and reality actually work hand in hand. Which is an impossibly difficult idea to grasp because there is a tendency in what in all the secondary you know number of the secondary sources I've read there is a tendency to romanticize an idea of a non-simulated space or epoch or a pre-simulated era which I believe for Baudrillard would be totally absurd simulation has always been present it's ever since you know one of the earliest examples would be and this is an example he gives in Fatal Strategies, would be Helen of Troy. God, I believe it was Fatal Strategies. He states um, that Helen of Troy was one of the first instances of simulation that we have, like, in record. Which is difficult because, at least of all the kind of secondary literature I've read, and the relationship that people have imbued on Baudrillard with the uh, Matrix film, there is a tendency to, to split or to create a distinction between simulation and reality. So when, we talk of, when he talks about simulation here as being that thing that exists with the feminine or the play of signification, it is at one time, you know, a constitutive element of the, you know, the condition for our survival or of our opposing power, of our opposing oppression, in the form of seduction. But at the same time, seduction is what undermines simulation. So what I will propose here is that there are two forms of simulation. In, his early, in a, one of his earlier books, he states that there is actually two forms of, of uh, reality as well. There was conflictual reality, or contradictory reality and non-contradictory reality. So it's kind of annoying that he didn't think of two different terms, but rather just kind of provides that one that one moment to define reality as such, as having two possible, possible paths. But then in, in, later on, he just uses the term reality, where you got the reader has to kind of fill in the blank, like, which reality is he talking about here? And if we accept his suggestion, the one I just kind of paraphrased from the perfect crime, 
that simulation and reality go hand in hand, then I believe we can, by extension, apply that same logic to simulation, where there is contradictory simulation and non-contradictory simulation. So the one that he would be opposing here is non-contradictory simulation. So some of the characteristics of that, or some of the elements that provide the condition for that, for that form of simulation's possibility, is in, you know, the realization of certain, you know, truths that are unchanging, solidified in images, like the case of pornography, for instance, something I brought up here before, in uh, Forget Foucault, how the proliferation of the image of sexuality in the case of pornography do not actually serve to obscure sex, but actually ground it in a very, in that, you know, the hyper-real form. That would actually be, hyper-real would probably correspond to that, or be the term used to designate the non-contradictory simulation. Whereas what opposes that, and I think this is where seduction shares an affinity, is with the contradictory simulation, where things are given the chance to change, where things are given the chance to not make sense, to not correspond to a broader cultural logic of knowing, of a certain uh, a, a priori um, reasoning, but are actually open to complete obscurity. In this way, uh, femininity for him is a principle of uncertainty. So it causes the sexual po poles to waver. It is not the pole opposed to masculinity, but what abolishes the differential opposition and thus sexuality itself, as incarnated historically in the masculine philocracy as it might be incarnated in the future in a female philocracy, if, you know, the project of women's liberation sees a logical conclusion. So he gives the example then of transvestism, which is, you know, a, a very outdated term, but here we have it, where he states that neither homosexuals nor, nor transsexuals, transvestites like to play with the indistinctness of the sexes. The spell they cast over themselves as well as others is born of sexual vacillation and not, as is customary, the attraction of one sex for the other. So he uses this example to kind of illustrate the absurdity of the male-female split, right? How these the two can very easily be overthrown, precisely because for Baudrillard, if we accept his thesis that simulation has a has a historical component to it, the only con one of the primary conditions for the the realization or conditions of the possibility of there to be two different sexes is by their occupying certain roles within the realm of signification, which is always up to change, which is always up to uh, negotiation. And the transvestite uses that, or in a sense, plays with that distinction, which for Baudrillard is like, well, look at that. It's not as though there's some kind of fundamental biological connection between women wearing skirts or men wearing pants. Like, it's, it's, that's an absurd distinction to make. So, I'll, I'll take this moment then to kind of level my own grievances against the contemporary discourse surrounding, you know, scientific, um, the scientific evidence pointing to the very fundamental distinctions between men and women, as though there's some kind of evolutionary impulse that makes, you know, 
women dress a certain way because clothes are natural, I guess. Or the existence of kitchens are natural, but that whole discourse, or the discourse surrounding that, at least in using Baudrillardian terminology, would correspond to that non-contradictory realm of simulation, where it would be wrong to s simply input onto the technological era, or the realm of the virtual, the virtual epoch, um, the designation of simulation, where simulation is, precisely because of its historical character, exists across time and space, and can then correspond to other institutions, as the one I just gave, like, you know, the very unambivalent discourse surrounding scientific validity that is floating, well, it's burning through us like a wildfire right now. The position of women in uh, a, a position of subserviency to men, then is a is something that Baudrillard wants to challenge a bit, because he, you know, he wants to remain faithful to his own, you know, lexical lexical field here, and suggest that reversibility is something that cuts across everything. So to that he says, uh, beginning with the exchange in primitive societies, stupidly interpreted as the first stage of women as object, all that we have been asked to believe. The universal discourse on the inequality of the sexes, the theme song of an egalitarian and revolutionary modernity, reinforced these days with all the energies of a failed revolution, is perhaps one gigantic misunderstanding. The opposite hypothesis is just as plausible and, from a certain perspective, more interesting. That is, that the feminine has never been dominated, but has always been dominant. So the reason he puts this idea forward is because he sees a value being located in the realm of signification, where if we attach meaning to a biological imperative or a sort of libidinal type truth, we are opening ourselves up to the possibility of, you know, being undone. We are essentially existing under the, laboring under the illusion of a certain trompe l'oeil, of a, of, a, of a game, of a idiotic play of, um, Kind of, kind of, you know, Descartes' demon thing. We we are existing under, uh, I guess, under an illusion, but the bad kind of illusion. Because he brings up illusion in his later work that that it, that is a very good thing. But here I'll, I'll use the term as being a bad thing. Whereas the feminine, because it corresponds to the realm of signification, has a better relationship to things as they are. That is, as they present themselves in the form of images. So it is in that way precisely because it allows for the possibility of change, the possibility of a kind of rhizomatic being that is much more <laughs> fruitful and much more liberating, if I'll use that term, than uh, kind of occupying oneself with very basic truths that govern our existence and keep us within that uh, some kind of territorial domain. Baudrillard goes so far as to say that the, the feminine is not just seduction, it also suggests a challenge to the male to be the sex, to monopolize sex and sexual pleasure, a challenge to go to the limits of its hegemony and exercise it unto death. And I, I love that idea. And we, we see it coming out in, if, if you give 
we were to isolate a certain culture and, and give them this idea of a fundamental truth, a fundamental set of truth that they would have to abide by, you would inevitably see a very, very quick destabilization of, of said truths in favor of either, you know, total destruction or of the attainment of some kind of new singularity that would be precisely by its disavowing that initial truth would be predicated on its on a sort of lie or would be so absurd that it would oh what a fantastic potential I wonder what that would look like but it's it's interesting here Baudrillard does this performs this kind of reversibility this classic Baudrillardian reversal here suggesting that it is not as though men or yeah so the masculine corresponds to this realm of truth or power because that is what like they've arrived at or the masculine has arrived at by some like teleological principle but they've actually been you know seduced into that position or kind of tricked into it by the feminine by the unknown as just another game to be played just i wish i had a better analogy i wonder there's a really great film that depicts this it's one of the best kind of demonstrations of, or what I will call uh, kind of a demonstration of seduction. And it's a South Korean film called The Wailing. It's a horror film. And without giving too much away, there's a moment... Well, the, the film is shrouded in ambiguity, where you don't necessarily know what is happening. You don't necessarily know who the bad person is, or who the uh, antagonist is. And there's a point at the end when after all this energy is expended on revealing a certain person to be the bad person, they then change form, they then become, you know, the, the embodiment of everything evil, in a sense. But it's still unclear whether or not they are the bad person. And I believe that to be a, a moment of seduction because that person is not, it's not as though they fundamentally uh, embody certain characteristics that place them in that position as being bad or whatever but it is they're being called into that position that places them there it's be them being I guess in a sense seduced into that position and by extension they seduce the you know the inspector's gaze to them and there's this it's just a very playful yet terrifying um, Sub subversion of the very clear distinction between, you know, good and bad. Very clear distinction between, you know, evil and and, and good. And I just, it's really fan, it's, it's a great movie though. Really go watch it. But it's interesting to think about it in that way. I read uh, seduction as, or what opposes seduction, power, pornography, uh, the realization of these sort of drives, it's, they, what they do, or they operate as a strategy, in my mind, a strategy against the principle of seduction through a certain compensation. So, if there is some basic affinity between seduction and power, and that seduction is kind of the condition for the possibility of anything, or if seduction does have some affinity with sexuality, in that it is the play of appearances, it is the uh, 
making one vulnerable. It's the opening one up to the possibility of change. Then what we have done in the case of like pornography, in the case of, you know, these power, uh, in our discussion around power, is we've pushed it to their limit, precisely because we think that by adding more, we will then attain, in a sense, that initial condition of seduction, or we will then attain a sort of otherness to the, the situation we've crafted for ourselves, which is in some ways the case. And Baudrillard is, is reluctant, or he's hesitant to say that, you know, we're just entering some kind of purely oppressive epoch, where in, in the, um, take for instance in the vital illusion, when he meditates a bit on Heidegger, and he says that, you know, at one time, uh, technology corresponded to this, at least in Heidegger, this kind of uh, a negative ontology. But he states that, in quoting Heidegger, that we actually open ourselves up to a, to a new mystery, to which Baudrillard says that maybe this, you know, this realization of all things is just another stage in the progression of being, or of kind of like in a, just another epistemological category that is open up to is open to a new uh, a new set of rules, a new set of principles, a new form of seduction that that you know is part of I guess this what what has always been and is not radically different from what has historically been the conditions for seduction or simulation or the good kind of simulation, but actually are very much very much a part of it. However, seduction is still what resists the endless accumulation or the endless proliferation of things. So seduction in that way opposes production. It opposes sex. It opposes power. If, you know, I, I, I maintain the clear distinction between such things. Because if we apply, you know, the seductive principle to the um, seduction's antitheses, then we see the deconstruction or the destabilization of any such dichotomous, you know, bifurcations, right? Or, or clear bifurcations, and therefore disrupt the seduct seductive principle in itself, which is oh, it's so di this is this this discourse is infectious. It's really it's difficult to navigate, but it's it's interesting because if seduction you know, coming out of um, discourse around reversibility is true to itself, then we also see its own demise embedded within its own um, its own being, right? It's, it's ontologically predisposed to be undermined. And he says, he says quite funnily that ours is a culture of premature ejaculation. That obsession, that uh, he's speaking to that obsession with you know, instant gratification with our connection to the body, with our connection to truth, that we have to maintain repeatedly through the institutions we've crafted where, you know, seduction is supposedly uh, opposed to this. And he even goes so far as to say that increasingly all seduction, all manner of enticement, which is always a highly ritualized process or a symbolic one, is effaced behind a naturalized sexual imperative behind the immediate and imperative realization of desire, which is very interesting because he sees the, 
very possibility of seduction disappearing, an idea that he is not consistent about at all. Seduction can, at, in Baudrillard's entire oeuvre, oeuvre, in his entire body of work, seduction can be simultaneously effaced, yet can also never be uh, destroyed. It's something that's always already there. It's something that cannot be removed from, I guess, social organization in any way. It arrives on the scene as soon as, you know, th there is a thing called consciousness. There is a thing called being. And it's not necessary. it's not reserved, like in the, in the humanist streams, to, to humans at all. It is something that exists in, in nature, it exists in the universe, it exists with, you know, the sun's distribution of light to the earth. These are things that all correspond to the law of seduction, supposedly, in that there's always a play between two things. There's always um, at, w at least two things. I don't want to limit it by saying two, but there's always a giving and a taking that don't correspond to, you know, our logic of giving and taking, or the law of equivalence, or the economic notions of exchange. So this suppression of seduction has led us to a point where the sexual has triumphed over seduction and annexed it as a subaltern form, or that thing that, um, that thing that is kind of romanticized and fetishized, what we are trying to reattain without necessarily knowing it. So then he, he states that nudity will never abolish seduction. It seems like a contradiction to what he had just stated. And he continues, for it immediately becomes something else, the hysterical enticements of a different game, one that goes beyond it. So even here he's entertaining the idea that seduction is always already there, right? Even in the most realized zone, you know, the orgy, in term uses in the transparency of evil, or the realization of all desires, there's uh, seduction still finds a place. What form it necessarily takes is difficult to grasp, because seduction res resists the idea of taking a single form. But it's always already there, and it's it's an idea. You know, I sound like a broken record, I know, but I'm trying to get that notion across because I really resist the readings in, of Baudrillard that like in the case of simulation, suggests that there's a very clear dichotomies to be established, which can then open, allow us to romanticize certain, uh, certain positions in, in time and space, where we weren't under the, operating under the aegis of a certain oppressive principle of simulation or of power or, or, or whatever. And Baudrillard is clear when bringing up the actual plight of women throughout history, that this is this was a very real thing. And for him, all it, it simply corresponds to another strategy of, you know, power, of the masculine principle of wanting to know, that has, you know, historically inputted onto women this, um, I guess, this image of sexuality, this image of desire, of seduction, that they have tried to oppress precisely because it's scary. A good example of this is, you know, we think of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, where, you know, you have Victor Frankenstein constructing a, 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 you know, a monster to bypass women, right? 
men can procreate too. We can go. We can skip the icky yucky, you know, uh, un, uh, unknowable type mysterious woman, and we can get we can do, pro, we can replace her with this new uh, scientific form, which of course backfires. And in that way, Frankenstein is a really good um, example of how how science you know sees its own end, right? How science actually always comes back, or that. Um, that kind of displacement of a sort of universal high truth onto a certain domain in the form of science or whatever turns that back on itself. And the term he uses later on is it's it's cannibalistic function. How it always how these extreme forms of power always turn back on those that employ them. Baudrillard then turns his attention to Foucault once again where he says in this in this rather long passage that this is why one must completely turn turn around what Foucault has to say in the history of sexuality volume 1 while still accepting its central hypothesis Foucault sees only the production of sex as discourse he is fascinated by the irreversible deployment and interstitial saturation of a field of speech which is at the same time the institution of a field of power culminating in a field of knowledge that reflects or inverts or invents it but from whence does power derive its somnambulistic functionality, this irresistible vocation to saturate space? If neither sociality nor sexuality exists, exist unless reclaimed and staged by power, perhaps power too does not exist unless reclaimed and staged by knowledge, in brackets theory, in which case the entire ensemble should be placed in simulation, and this too perfect mirror inverted, even if the truth affects it, produces even if the truth effects it produces are marvelously excuse me, decipherable. I didn't know that word was so hard to say. So he goes on. Furthermore, the equation of power with knowledge, this convergence of mechanism over a field of rule, they have seemingly swept clean. This conjunction described by Foucault as complete and operational is perhaps only the, only the concurrence of two dead stars whose last glimmering, glimmering still illuminate each other, though they have lost their own radiance. In their original authentic phase, knowledge and power were opposed to each other, sometimes violently, as were, moreover, sex and power. But if today they are merging, is this not due to the progressive extent, extenuation of the re, their reality principle, of their distinctive characteristics, their specific energies? Their conjunction, then, would herald not a reinforced positivity, but a twin indifferentiation, at the end of which only their phantoms would remain, mingling amongst themselves, left to haunt us. So this is an extension of the, the thesis or the idea that Baudrillard proposes in Forget Foucault. One of the central theses is that, you know, power has never really existed. And that Foucault, by giving it a face, in a sense, even if that face is multifaceted, reinvigorates the sense of there being this thing called power, where there is not a recognition in Foucault of, you know, the simulating apparatuses that, that operate behind the construction of power Moreover, uh, a conversation about seduction, or how, thinking back to uh, how I kind of illustrated it earlier, how men corresponding, or the masculine corresponding to the domain of power, don't achieve that point just by, like some teleological principle, but are seduced into it by the ambiguity, by the unknown of the feminine. In very much the same way, power only comes into fruition that way, 
and it doesn't correspond to, to a history per se. And by their, the only position that they really have is in the form of a specter, a thing that is simultaneously there while not being there. In either case, they are surely destabilized of their privileged position in whatever kind of scheme we, we, uh, we place them in. And another way that, you know, Baudrillard sees, in the case of Foucault, something lacking is, you know, a, a discourse around simulation, but specifically when talking about sex, there's, there's a startling absence of a discussion of, like, pornography and what role that necessarily plays. Where Baudrillard says, and he gives, you know, he talks about pornography rather extensively, that it corresponds to a disenchanted simulation, a truer than true, the height of the simulacrum, Whereas enchanted simulation, the trompe l'oeil, falser than false, operates at the level of the secret of appearances. So again, this is all opposed to the kind of Freudian psychoanalytic domain that suggests that you know, beneath the surface, there is this thing from which all drives emanate, from which all want derives. Where Baudrillard wants to think of us as just being, you know, we only exist on the surface, really. We are in very much that capacity, a kind of body without organs. Now, there's an important distinction to draw now between uh, Deleuze and Baudrillard. I've been, I've been resisting saying his name in French just because it sounds very, very douchey. But uh, there, there is a little bit of a lack of work done by Baudrillard in generating a distinction between he and, and Deleuze. And like I'd said in Forget Foucault, the second half, the interview with Seville, uh, L'Autrangeur, um, takes that question on a little bit. But whereas Deleuze in A Thousand Plateaus with, with Guattari really call for, uh, you know, deterritorializing oneself, like craft new space for yourself, make, make something for yourself that is outside of the, you know, territorial domain of like the construction of the face that grounds you or something like that, you know, in favor of this kind of rhizomatic intensity or these possibilities, Baudrillard is much more resistant to the possibility of mobilizing any such things, where for him that would correspond to the domain of desire, where there would be a kind of, you know, truth to either subjectivity, a truth to, moreover to then, by allocating that subjectivity to um, dissecting, to uncovering the hidden truths of your own body or what you want, and then mobilizing them, all this would correspond to that domain of disenchanted simulation, or the truer than true, the height of the simulacrum, pornography, if you will. Where for Baudrillard, and, and this is one of the really complex ideas in him, it's that it, it just seems like he wants any sort of change to come about miraculously, to just sort of happen, like, like fairy dust. A difficult pill to swallow, I know, but... It, it certainly is an interesting one because that is the fundamental property property of seduction, where it's not something that can be mobilized. Seduction is not provocation, a distinction that Bell Hooks takes up pretty pretty well. But seduction is what forces people or things or anything out of their being, out of their wants, out of their desires, into total newness without that being, without that thing having any say in the matter. And this, you know, that distinction between Deleuze and Baudrillard is, is again hard to, hard to map because, 
As he says, seduction cannot possibly be represented, because in seduction the distance between the real and its double, and the distortion between the same and the other is abolished. Bending over a pool of water, Narcissus quenches his thirst. His image is no longer other. It is a surface that absorbs and seduces him, which he can approach but never pass beyond, for the, there is no beyond, just as there is no reflexive distance between him and his image. The mirror of water is not a surface of reflection, but of absorption, where it would, you, you don't see yourself because there is no self to see. Yourself is only the possibility of your not being a self in the, in the seductive moment, where you are only measured by your, your, I use it, the whole, the whole Sean Lexica, Sean Lexica, the, the whole lexicon around seduction is so difficult to navigate because it's all coming out of a discourse around production, around power. So when I say like measuring up, right, it, it, it belongs to that category or to that thing that opposes seduction, which is difficult. It's difficult to, you know, get us out of that. But the condition for one's possibility is predicated not on that uh, thing attaining a certain, you know, fundamental ontology, but precisely in that they're being uh, susceptible to other, to, to something else, to, to other spaces, to anything like that. So in the case of narcissists, right, they aren't looking at themselves, they're looking at what they can, what they can become, which is never themselves, which is just a constant uh, it's like a constant tug of war, right? Trying to negotiate a self within this constant, um, the, the, the infinite gra gravitational pull of that, what seduces you. So in the seductive moment then, Baudrillard sort of concludes that idea that to seduce is to die as reality and reconstitute oneself as illusion. Becoming an illusion, though, and this is in one of his uh, one of the most recent um, collections of interviews. Someone asks him, "What is uh, what does illusion mean for him?" And for him, illusion is a form of death because illusion means the um, the total destabilization of what one is in favor of you know infinite possibility and infinite possibility that's always occurring while simultaneously attaining some kind of singularity that is not susceptible to change. It's all very confusing. But him saying this here, to die as a reality and be born again as illusion, is, uh, like, I, I enjoy that idea quite a bit, because it it's not really a praxis, but it does give a semblance to some kind of, I guess, uh, con concreteness or kind of solidifies or crystallizes the idea of seduction like what is the end goal what 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 form does it necessarily take and even my wanting such an explanation is just um in the service of a of a sort of masculine principle of wanting to know of excavating of uh, you know being very uh, anxious about the possibility of not knowing so one of the things that oppose you know, science, power, or whatever, for Baudrillard that he meditates on is the um, astrology, where he, sta he states that the, um, the deception can be inscribed in the sky. Its power will not be diminished. Every sign of the zodiac has its form of seduction, for we all seek the favor of a meaningless fate and place our hopes in the spell that might result from some absolutely irrational conjecture. Here lies the strength 
of the horoscope and zodiacal signs. No one should laugh at astrology, for he who no longer seeks to seduce the stars is the sadder for it. In effect, many a person's misfortune comes from their not having a place in the sky within a field of signs that would agree with them, that is to say, in the last instance, from their not having been seduced by their birth and, their con and its constellation. Because, there's the, uh, because astrology corresponds so heavily to the realm of signification, right? There is no attachment to science, right? Pe people who are, you know, high prophets of, like, the scientific discourse scoff at astrology as being this thing that has no, no sense, doesn't correspond to a general logic of scientific observation and, and deduction, so therefore it has no meaning. When, you know, we know full well that our... You know, even science predicated heavily on the construction of stories, on the construction of certain elements that allow for the condition of its possibility. And it would be naive to undermine the role that, you know, the meaning people have had with the stars, with the gods, all throughout the course of history means nothing. But for Baudrillard, he, he, he very much aligns that with seduction as being that which opposes, or one of those things that oppose you know, the high humanistic standard associated with um, a, a material imperative that grounds everything in the earth or the body or whatever, and turns to the cosmos in a sense, that turns to um, something exterior to us that is always, precisely because, simultaneously because of its uh, geographical distance from us, but also because of its the impossibility of really conceptualizing the magnitude of stars. We are always challenged by them. We are always challenged to attain that that degree of of what I would call being, or that um, that level of of non non masculineness, or the non being part of a, a mappable, quantifiable world of the unknown, or what is at least unknown to us. And of course, NASA and Elon Musk are fucking that up because, it, you know, we're suddenly giving it a face, right? Space exploration is not doing great things for uh, Baudrillard's theory here. To kind of round off this, this episode, I'll, I'll end this one with uh, Baudrillard's thinking about a story called The Death in uh, Samarkand. Samarkand. Man, well, anyways. So the story goes as follows. This, uh, it's a story of a soldier who meets death at a crossing in the marketplace and believes he saw him make a uh, menacing gesture in his direction. The man then rushes to the king's palace and asks for the king for his best horse in order that he might flee during the night far from death, as far as Samarkand, upon which the king summons death to the palace and reproaches him for having frightened one of his best servants. But death, astonished, replies, I didn't mean to frighten him. It was just that I was surprised to see the soldier here when we had a rendezvous tomorrow in Samarkand. So what Baudrillard does with this story is he suggests that this is um, a, a brilliant story of, uh, that, that captures seduction because it implies that there's no escaping the, the law of seduction, where it is not as though the, the soldier is actually able to dodge death, but the soldier is, without totally unbeknownst to them, are seduced into it, by their misrecognizing the um, the appearance of death in, in in some some capacity, so he states that yes, one runs towards one's fate 
all the more surely by seeking to escape it. Yes, everyone seeks his own death, and the failed acts are the most successful. Yes, signs follow an unconscious course, but all this concerns the truth of the rendezvous in Samarkand. It does not account for the seduction of the story, which is in no way an apologue of truth. So that the gesture that the man believes death gave him doesn't actually correspond to, you know, wanting of death to, to kill the man, but is just a, a sign amongst others that led the man to go, you know, to go to the place where he will die, where following the destiny of the world or whatever, he will die. So had death been, but Baudrillard's words, had death been content to call the soldier back to order, the story would lose its charm. The gesture does not, sorry, everything here is hinged on a single involuntary sign. The gesture does not appear to be part of a strategy, nor even an unconscious ruse, yet it takes on the unexpected depth of seduction, that is, it appears as something that moves laterally, as a sign that, unbeknownst to the protagonist, including death, as well as the soldier, advances a deadly command, an aleatory sign behind which another conjunction, marvelous or disastrous, is being enacted. So it's unbeknownst to death, of course, that the, the, the soldier would um, interpret that gesture in that way. So none of the none of the players, none of the actors in this this scheme, actually craft or actually lay out this this plan, but that it just comes into being. So this is there is a sort of determinism present in Baudrillard in this way, where you can't necessarily escape from your destiny, and how you know any sort of belief that you have command over it, like the soldier does in this situation, is just another trompe l'oeil, right? You are simply just being um, thrown back into the game. You are, can never escape that sort of destiny that wrests you away from you, your own command of yourself, of your being, and then puts you into the, you know, the realm of the unknown, right? You know, the realm of signification that doesn't necessarily have uh, clear, any clear connection to truth, but can nevertheless elicit very real effects. So it's on that note that I'll end here about, about midway through seduction, and um, I'll have to continue this in the next one, which will probably only be in a few weeks. I'm going away for a while, but uh, I hope that I hope that that was interesting and helpful. You know, really, Baudrillard's words are infectious, and they they generate more questions than answers. Which is part of you know part of his thesis here is answers scare Baudrillard in a way. They, answers are inevitably fascist. What do you want? What, all that he wants to do, to put it as simply as I can, is try to make things less clear. <laughs> he wants things to correspond to enigmatic principles that can't be mapped or quantified in any sort of uh, recognizable way, which is really, you know, I, this is what I love about him. But at the same time, it, it makes me furious. Uh, but anyways, for those of you that listened this far, thanks a lot, and I'll see you next time.